Welcome to Ragbags Bonus Bag. My name's Frank Burton. Here begins the first of five special episodes, which I'm releasing over five days this week, serializing the audiobook version of the first Ragbag novel, Everything I Am. And listen, seeing as you're getting this for free, please do buy a physical copy from Amazon and give it to somebody else, someone who will like it and enjoy it. Right, here's the start of the book. Enjoy. Welcome to the audiobook version of Everything I Am, written and read by Frank Burton. Chapter 1 My dad kidnapped me once. I must have been six years old. Him and my mum had been arguing about something, I never found out what, and one day he announced that he'd had enough that he was moving out and taking me with him. My mum said that hardly seemed likely, given that he didn't have the first idea about how to look after me. My dad had never taken me out on his own before, and now he was claiming he could take care of me single-handedly. What was he going to do, give up his job? I was sitting there listening to all of this, because this was how my parents preferred to argue. None of this, go to your room while your mother and I have a chat business. It was almost like they needed an impartial witness. My dad backed down and said she was right. He admitted he didn't have the first idea about how to raise a child and she was doing a fantastic job with me. The following day, he picked me up from school early, something he'd never done previously. I mean, he'd never picked me up from school early or otherwise. There was a suitcase slung on the back seat beside me. Where are we going, I said. Taking a little trip, said my dad. Like a holiday? Not exactly, he said, then corrected himself. But yes, a holiday is what this will be. You and me, son. Are we going to the beach, I said. Not exactly, he said, without correcting himself this time. We'll have fun, though. Fun and games. My dad seemed like a total stranger at this point. Fun and games. I'd never heard him talk like that before. That may have been something to do with the fact that I hardly saw him at all. He was rarely in the house. But I suppose, in a strange way, he was always in the house because his picture was everywhere. Family photos in every room. I used to wonder why dictators go to the trouble of plastering their own pictures over everything to the point of insisting their portrait hangs on everyone's living room. But come to think of it, I experienced the same principles at work on a smaller scale during childhood. My dad, as you'll soon discover, was not the sort of person to think things through rationally, so it's unlikely to have been a conscious strategy. It's more likely he hung his own picture in every room because he was an egomaniac. I used to stare at his photo quite a lot as a child. I certainly spent more time in the company of my dad's photographs than I did with the man in the flesh. We arrived at our destination ten minutes after getting in the car. It was a block of flats with a row of small garages round the side. I'd never been there before, but my dad clearly had. He had a key to one of the garages. He also had a key to one of the flats, seven floors up. I held his hand as we ascended the stairs. I can't remember ever having held his hand before. So, this is it, he said as we stepped through the door. A holiday house. There was an unmade double bed in one room and a single in another. This one's yours, he said. Where are all the toys, I said. Oh, he said, right. Didn't think of that. 
We got some videos, though. This was 1986. Our house was yet to be furnished with a video cassette player. I had a friend at school who claimed to have one, but I'd never actually seen the thing in action. I smiled for the first time that afternoon. Seriously, he said. Come on, I'll show you. The excitement of sitting down to watch an actual video for the first time proved to be short-lived after it turned out my dad didn't know how to work the machine. He made a phone call to a friend while reading out sections of the instruction manual. Once he got it working, it turned out none of the videos were suitable for family viewing. They were horror films mostly. Years later, when I rediscovered this collection, I realised it included the film Ghostbusters, which I guess my dad had assumed was another video nasty. The only tape I was allowed access to was something called Jiminy Cricket's Christmas, which I watched while my dad popped out of the shops. Now here's an interesting point which says something about culture and also about memories. This is just an aside which has nothing to do with the story I'm telling, but make sure you pay attention to this bit because I've got a feeling it's important. Over the week that followed, I watched Jiminy Cricket's Christmas at least seven times per day. So perhaps 50 watches overall would be a conservative estimate. The only thing I remember about this cartoon is the title. And that's not because I've blocked it out of my mind due to the trauma of being kidnapped. Being kidnapped wasn't traumatic. For one thing, I didn't know that I'd been kidnapped. The most likely explanation of why I have no memory of Jiminy Cricket's Christmas is that once I'd left that flat and returned to the real world, not only did I never see it again, but nobody ever mentioned it. Now consider this, I have never seen the film Ghostbusters, but I remember it. Without meaning to, over the years, I've soaked up all the cultural reference points, quoted lines of dialogue, overheard conversations and snatches of TV clips, as a result, I feel as though I've seen the film many times. Is it simply a case that hanging around with other people who've seen it has made me familiar with the story? Or is there something deeper than that? Anyway, the video ended and my dad hadn't come back yet. I decided to explore my new living environment. There was a decent view from the window. I could see my school in the distance. From the bedroom, I could make out the park my mum used to take me to. I rooted through some of the grown-up stuff in the living room drawers. Magazines with naked ladies in, a massive book of stamps, a box full of assorted car parts, and a huge collection of watercolour paints and rolled-up art pieces. Whoever owned this flat certainly had a wide range of interests. On the kitchen wall was a pin board with various lists and timetables attached to it. The names on each of the sheets are all the same. If my dad had taken me there a year earlier, I wouldn't have been able to read any of it, and this story would most likely have been much shorter and less complicated. As it happened, he'd chosen to kidnap me at a time when I was getting to grips with basic literacy. And so, without too much trouble, I was able to read all eight names on the pinboard. I recognised two of them as people I knew, Frank, my dad, and Claude, my uncle. The other names were just random jumbles of letters. I deduced that they were names, as they all started with a capital, and I guessed at their pronunciation, which turns out was mostly accurate. I was very pleased with myself when I realised two of the names rhymed, and I composed the following chant. 
Frank, Claude, Olaf, Martin, Ben, Omar, Graham, then there's Len. I pranced around the kitchen floor, hopping from towel to towel, chanting, Frank, Claude, Olaf, Martin, Ben, Omar, Graham, then there's Len. Then I started singing it to the tune of Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. I stopped instinctively when my dad came back. Somehow I knew this would have to be my secret little song. Whoever these people were, they were part of my dad's world, a world that was largely, if not entirely, unknown to me. Anyway, the song and the pinboard had already been thrown from my mind by the sight of the bulging carrier bags in my dad's hands and the unmistakable smell of their contents. In one hand was a carrier bag full of fish and chips, in the other was an equally large carrier bag bursting with Woolworth's pick and mix. I was yet to learn the value of money, but I remember thinking it must have cost him a fortune. This is going to be tea time every day, son, he said. While we're here, it's fish and chips for the main and a mountain of sweets for desserts. Mum says sweets are bad for your teeth, I said. Mum's not here, he said. While you're here, you don't need to brush your teeth. Really? I'll let you in on a little secret, Frank, he said. I haven't brushed my teeth for years. I pretend that I do. Really, I just sit on the toilet and suck on a mint. Won't they go bad and fall out? Hopefully someday soon, he said. The dentist can make me a nice set of false ones that make me look like I brush five times a day. I don't have to worry about it anymore. I was going to pursue this line of questioning some more, but my dad was already unloading the goodies onto the coffee table in the living room. We ate cross-legged beside each other on the floor with a pair of plastic forks. How's the video? he said. It was okay, I said. Bit strange watching a Christmas film with the sun blazing outside. That's the beauty of this new technology, he said. You can watch Christmas shows in the summertime, summer specials in the winter. You can even see films before they come out of the cinema if you know where to go. I was beginning to learn that my dad had an answer for everything. The only questions he didn't have answers for were how long are we staying here for, where's my mum, stuff like that. But his casual dismissal of these questions somehow reassured me that there was nothing to worry about. The fact that he was armed with a ton of sweets probably helped. I remember falling asleep that night in a strange creaky bed gazing up at the blank ceiling. I was happy. I sang my secret song to myself in the tiniest of whispers. Frank, Claude, Olaf, Martin, Ben, Omar, Graham, then there's Len. Frank, Claude, Olaf, Martin, Ben, Omar, Graham, then there's Len. Chapter 2 The following day, after breakfast, my dad had to pop out again, but wouldn't take me with him. He said this place was our secret hideout, and no one was supposed to know we were there, because it was a game we were playing. A big game of hide and seek, and everyone would be looking for us. And one of these days we'd pop our heads up and we'd say, here we are, and the world would be overjoyed. But it wasn't time yet, we had to stay hidden. So how come you can go out? I said. 
I have a special knack, he said. It's a trick I can pull to make sure people don't notice me. I can blend in with the crowds, but I can't do that if you're with me. They'll all be saying, who's that boy? Why is he not at school? Isn't he a handsome young man? All that sort of thing. But you know what happens, you reach a certain age, you'll reach it too one day. When you walk down the street and no one notices you, you're no longer of interest to anyone, you're just part of the background hum, like a pigeon. With me, it was when I hit 35. Before that, I could still pass for 20-something. And you'll learn when you get older. People have got a weird fascination with that particular age group. When people see a young man in his 20s in the street and he's well-dressed, they'll turn their heads and they'll wonder what he's up to. He looks like the kind of guy who's really making his way in the world. Good for him. Or if he's badly dressed, again, he'll turn heads. People assume he's off to steal a car or something. They'll memorise his description while they're casually crossing to the other side of the street. Young women... Well, that's a whole other story. I remember all of this with real clarity, and I think that's because I was hanging off my dad's every word. I'd barely heard him speak up until that point in my life, and now it turned out he could really say some intriguing things. While he was getting ready to leave, I built myself a den by draping a blanket over a couple of chairs and emptied the drawer of machine parts into it. Hang on, said my dad. You can't play with them, they're Omar's. Who's that? I said casually. No one. My dad shoved all the bits of metal back into their drawer. What about the art set? I said. Can I play with that? That's someone else's, he said. What can I play with then? Why don't you watch your video? I've seen it twice already this morning. Okay, said my dad. I'll bring you something back. There's sweets in the cupboard. Okay. He went out. I played in my empty den for a while longer. Then I watched Jiminy Cricket's Christmas again. Then I went and sat on the windowsill in my bedroom. It must have been playtime because I could see a whole buzz of activity around the school in the distance. I missed it all of a sudden. I missed my friends and I missed my mum. Then I saw my mum. She was in the park, in the playground where she used to take me. The whole place was empty. It was just her, sitting on the swing. It was the swing on the left at the end, the one I always insisted on using. She wasn't really swinging on it properly, she was just gazing into the distance. And something my dad had said the previous day popped into my head. He said, my mum looks after me 24-7-365. I asked him what those numbers meant. He calmly explained that 24 meant 24 hours a day, 7 stood for 7 days a week, and 365 stood for the 365 days in all non-leap years. I pointed out it would have been quicker just to say all the time, because saying 24-7-365 is literally twice as long. He said that wasn't the point, and the point he was making was, my mum needed a break. That's why we'd come on this holiday, because my mum needed time to relax and have fun for herself instead of constantly providing fun for other people. So clearly that's what my mum had been doing there, trying her best to relax and enjoy herself without me getting in the way. And the fact that she wasn't swinging properly meant she was badly out of practice. 
My dad came back around midday with a pair of sausage sandwiches and a small pack of plastic cars, which I took straight into my den and kept there for the remainder of our stay. Over lunch, I told him about seeing my mum on the swings. Are you sure it was her? He said with a funny look. Definitely. Doesn't seem like the sort of thing she would do. Anyway, we're quite a long way from the park. You can still see it quite clearly. You'd better stay away from that window then, said my dad. We're supposed to be hiding here. I'm getting a bit bored of Jiminy Cricket's Christmas, I said. Are you sure I can't see any of those other ones? Halloween looks good. And Poltergeist. Geist, he corrected. He's a type of ghost. And now you're too young to watch horror films. Maybe you should go to the video shop next time you're out, I said. Hang on said my dad. How do you know the names of the films? They're written on the cases, I said. You can read? I've been learning at school. Don't they have to teach you the alphabet first? Come on, Dad, the alphabet's easy. He smiled uneasily. Easy for you, clever clogs. I couldn't help noticing the next time I came back from the bathroom... My dad had taken down all the paperwork from the pinboard in the kitchen. Chapter 3 Shall we be serious for a minute? said my dad later that week, over yet another place of fish and chips. I want to tell you something. I've always wanted to tell you this, but I'm not allowed. Your mum wouldn't like it. Society wouldn't like it. Do you know what that means, society? Is that one of mum's friends? Society just means people in general. Unfortunately, people like to play this game where everyone's the same as each other and everyone thinks the same things. That's why there are some things you simply can't talk about because you're supposed to be playing along. It's a shame that people are like this, Frank, because it stops us from having our own ideas. And I think you should have your own ideas. I think you should grow up to be the sort of person who thinks differently to other people and not in a pointlessly rebellious way. Do you understand? I don't think you do yet, but one day you will. And I hope that one day you'll look back on what I'm telling you and it will make a lot more sense than it does now because I'm probably not making any sense to you at all, am I? No, I said. Let's just talk about this one thing, he said. Because I think it's really important. They'll teach you at school. And your mum will teach you this too. And the books that you read. Even the TV shows you watch. They'll teach you this same lesson. Don't tell lies. You know that's wrong, don't you? I know you're only six. But you know telling lies is wrong, right? I nodded. But I'm telling you. And this is the really ironic thing. You know what irony is? I shook my head. We'll deal with that another time. The point I'm making is, when people tell you that lying is wrong, they're lying. Think about that. So you're saying it's good to tell lies, I said. Absolutely not, he said. I'd never say that. Saying lying is good is just as inaccurate as saying lying is bad. Here's the truth, Frank. Lying is a thing that people do. It's a fact of life. People lie 
for all sorts of different reasons. Sometimes good, sometimes bad, but usually it has very little to do with right and wrong. Like when I told you we were going on holiday. That was a lie. This isn't a holiday in any real sense of the word. We're still in the same town for a start. But I told you that because I didn't want you to think I was just taking you away from your mum. But actually that's the truth. That's what I've done. It was wrong of me to do that. It was wrong of me to take you away from your mum. But it wasn't wrong of me to lie to you about it because the lie made you feel better about the situation. It does feel good to be on holiday, I agreed. Now, let's talk about promises, said my dad. Do you know what a promise is? Yes, I said. Go on then, he said. What's a promise? Uh, you know, it's when you say you're going to do something or not do something and then that's what you do or not do, you know, because you said you would. Right, but let's look at it this way. A promise is a lie. A promise is a special kind of lie because it's a lie that we tell ourselves as well as telling other people. You know what happens when mums and dads get married? It's awful. We have to stand in front of a big group of people, all our family and friends, and we have to promise that we'll stay together forever. And as I say, promises are lies. Promises are always lies. All promises without exception, whether they're wedding vows or money-back guarantees, they're all based on the flawed assumption that people are infallible. The idea that people never change their mind once they've made a decision is a lie. The idea that people aren't in a constant state of flux is a lie. Do you know what flux is? Forget it. What I'm trying to say is, once you've realised that all promises are lies... And it took me a long time to figure this out. That's why I'm telling you now. So you don't have to go through what I did. Once you've realised that all promises are lies, you can use that to your advantage. Don't go promising things that aren't feasibly possible. You have to be subtle about these things. Don't lose sight of the fact that most people, pretty much everyone, apart from the likes of you and me, they all think promises are like these magical immutable entities that exist in a way that somehow is beyond our comprehension. So don't give the game away by promising things that will clearly never happen. Make reasonable promises. Get married if you want, but realise that doesn't mean you can't change your mind. You know what I like to do, Frank? And I'm not proud of this, but I'll tell you about it anyway because it perfectly illustrates my point. I have this habit of borrowing money off people and promising to pay it back as soon as I can. While the debt is mounting up, I'll make a point of finding out things about that person that I can use against them in some way. I have this friend called Graham, for example. Graham is your friend, I said. Yes, like I say, I have this friend called Graham. And five years ago, Graham lent me £1,000. That's a lot of money, right? You know how many sweets you could buy with a thousand pounds? Penny sweets, I said. Well, it's a hundred for a pound, so... Anyway, said my dad, it's a lot of sweets, right? And I promised I'd pay Graham back. You know what I did when I made that promise? I swore on your mum's life 
And then I swore on your life. You know what that means, swearing on someone's life like that? No, I said. My dad cackled with conspiratorial glee as he whispered, Nothing! (laughs) It's actually complete gibberish. But to people who aren't like you and me, people who think promises are magical, mystical blocks of concrete, people like Graham, bless him, swearing on a person's life means that if for whatever reason things don't turn out the way we intended, that means there's some kind of awful curse on the person whose life you've sworn upon. And the funniest part is, none of the people who go along with these promises of ours actually believe in curses or witchcraft or anything like that. But I don't know, maybe there's something in our cultural history that we haven't quite managed to shake off yet. And when I say we, I don't mean enlightened people like you and me, Frank. I mean everyone else. You mean Graham, I said. Well, yes, in this particular case, I do mean Graham. I'll be honest with you, Frank. I've sworn on your life and on your mum's life lots and lots of times for all sorts of different reasons. It's just a slightly daft way of solidifying a promise, making it look like a promise is the truth. But what happened with Graham? Graham and me, we're still good friends. But after he lent me the thousand pounds, shortly after that, I discovered that Graham had a mistress. Do you know what a mistress is? No, I said. Let's just say, said my dad, if you're a married man, you're not supposed to have one. And from that point on, every time Graham asked me about the thousand pounds that he lent me, I'd mention that I knew all about his mistress. And eventually, he stopped asking. I know this probably doesn't make a great deal of sense to you, and I don't think it's because you're only six years old. It's simply down to the fact that human relationships are complicated. The way I've told the story makes it sound like somehow I've tricked Graham into giving me a £1,000, which, in fairness, is exactly what I've done. But also, I should point out, Me and Graham are really good friends because there are other secrets me and Graham have between us as well. Secrets that are bigger than a thousand pounds. Secrets that are bigger than Graham's marriage vows. But I can't talk about that now. You can tell me the secrets, I said a little bit too eagerly. I'm good at keeping secrets. I don't think you are, said my dad. I'm brilliant at keeping secrets actually. Okay, what secrets have you kept? Mum crashed her car into a lamppost and dented the bumper, I said. And she told you someone had knocked into the car while it was parked and drove off before she could write the registration down? She told me not to tell you. You see, that was ages ago, and I haven't said a word about it. You have now, though, said my dad. And that, unfortunately, means you're not as good at keeping secrets as I would need you to be, if you were to hear the things that me and Graham know about. Besides, it's all grown-up stuff. What about when I am grown-up? I said. Will you tell me then? My dad picked up the empty chip wrapper in front of him and licked some of the grease off. I can't promise you that, he said. As we've established, I can't promise you anything. Thanks for telling me about your mum and the car, though. I can use that. Use that for what? My dad tapped himself on the nose. Grown-up stuff, that's all.
Chapter 4 The following day, my dad took me home to my mum. It wasn't a scheduled part of his master plan. I got toothache and he couldn't take me to the dentist without blowing our cover. It turned out the cops had been out looking for us. My dad dropped me off at the doorstep, barked some brief bits of information at my mum and then drove off. I guess he was worried about getting arrested, although it's difficult to guess at my dad's motivations. My mum took me to the dentist. I got a filling and a Scooby-Doo sticker. In the car on the way home, I told her about my week with my dad. Not that there was much to tell. And every single detail of the story seemed to get on her nerves. The sweets, the fish and chips, the video, even the toy cars in the den seemed like a personal insult. Then I told her that I saw her in the park sitting on the swings and she started crying. To this day, it's the only time I've seen my mum cry. What's the matter? I said. I'm just glad to have you home, she said. I'm glad to be home too, I said. It was getting pretty boring. He shouldn't have taken you away. I know he said that. He said it was wrong of him to take me away. He said some interesting things, actually. Like what? I can't remember much of it now. It was interesting at the time. I did have a good time with my dad. He's not going to get arrested, is he? No. Where's he gone? I have no idea, said my mum. Your dad has made me incredibly angry and upset and I wouldn't care if I never saw him again, so I don't really care where he's gone. And you may have had a good time with your dad, Frank, but I want you to understand that your dad doesn't care about you. He took you away because he wanted to prove a point to me. That's all it was. He didn't want to spend quality time with you or teach you valuable life lessons. He was just playing a game because he's a child. You're more of a grown-up than he is, and that's the truth. So let's not talk about your dad anymore. Let's go home and play snakes and ladders and build a Lego castle and have some spaghetti bolognese and fruit salad and read a book. OK, I said, that sounds like fun. My mum took her hand off the gear stick and patted me on the knee. When can we get a video player? I said, never. Two days later, with no explanation, my dad was living with us again. We were back to our old routine of school and work, so I hardly saw him at all. But one thing was different. Instead of disappearing at the weekend doing his own thing, my dad started taking me out on a Saturday. This is what's happening now he explained as we drove into town. Nothing has changed since before. Your mum and me, we've been discussing things without you watching us this time. We agreed that discussing things without you watching is a good idea. And we've agreed that in the past, I haven't spent any quality time with you. And it's important for us to spend quality time together, isn't it? Just like we did in our week away. So where are we going? Just into town. What are we going to do? I have some business to take care of, but I'll find you something to do first. The trouble is, I have to take care of business all the time. Grown-up stuff. There's all sorts of things to deal with when you're a grown-up. 
like you wouldn't believe. That's what I don't understand about all your children's games. All of them seem to be geared towards pretending to be grown-ups, like dressing up as a policeman or a fireman or a soldier or something. It's only when you grow up that reality hits you. Those three jobs I just mentioned, all three of them, badly paid and carry the immediate risk of death. If you want my opinion, at the very least, kids should be dressing up as stockbrokers or advertising executives. Not so much fun, I suppose, but in terms of preparing you for life. What do you do, Dad? What? What's your job? I go to work at the office. What do you do there? It's complicated, really, Frank. Uh, the company I work for, they make locks. You know what a lock is? You mean like a lock on a door? Exactly. They make locks for doors. And the people who decide on which locks should be used on doors are called building contractors. So my job involves talking to building contractors and telling them that they should be using the locks that are designed and manufactured by the company I work for instead of a locks that are designed by a different company. And the irony is, Frank, you remember we talked about irony. The irony is there's not really any discernible difference between one kind of lock and the other kind of lock. If I were feeling cynical, I'd say they're exactly the same. They're just made by different companies at a roughly equal price. You understand, Frank? Yes, I said, I think so. I bet none of your school friends ever dressed up as a sales rep for a security company, have they? I don't know, I said. What would they wear? A shirt and a tie? Well, that's what we have to wear for school. Right, said my dad. Right, yeah, I see. I understand it now. That's what it's all about. Sorry, Frank, I just realised something. You'll realise it yourself one day, but I'm just realising it now. They make you wear a shirt and tie to school when you're six years old because they've got to start you early. They've got to get you used to the idea of wearing a shirt and tie for the rest of your life because that's what's expected of you. That, as a matter of fact, is the best you can get. You know that? What? Getting a job where it's compulsory to wear a shirt and tie is the best you'll ever get from life. I'm sorry to have to break this to you, but it's true. If you don't work hard at school... You'll end up having to do a job where you don't have to wear a shirt and tie. And that means working in a factory or sweeping the streets with a broom. Quite like wearing a shirt and tie, I said. Just as well, said my dad. If all goes to plan, you'll be in one until you're 65. Won't it need a wash? I don't mean you'll be wearing the exact same shirt and tie the whole time. I mean, look at me today. I'm wearing jeans and a t-shirt. That's because I'm doing a different type of work today. Is that where we're going, to your work? Sort of, he said. Like I was saying, I have some business to attend to. But it's grown-ups business. I'll find something for you first. We parked the car and had a wander around town for a while. I asked if we could go to McDonald's. He said we could do that at lunchtime. I spotted a little ride outside the shopping centre. Three little cars spinning around in a circle. I'd been on it a few times in the past when my mum had taken me shopping. That ride, I said. My dad took a look at the sign. 20p, he said. Right, let's do this. He took a coin from his pocket and pressed it into my palm. You get going, I'll go and fetch some more coins. I jumped on the car 
and my dad disappeared into a shop. The ride was fun, but it finished before he got back, which meant I had to sit there for a while, watching the passing shoppers, wondering what their lives were like in comparison to mine. Eventually, my dad arrived with a transparent plastic bag, stuffed with 20p coins. I'd never seen so much money in my life. Little treat for you, Frank. How big are your pockets? He examined the little zip-ups on the side of my coat. The bag was too big to fit, so he emptied half its contents into one side and stuffed the remainder of the bag in the other. Right, here's the rules, he said. Don't go showing all these coins to people. If a thief sees how many coins you've got in your pocket, they could snatch you up, right? OK, I said. Just take one out at a time, have as many rides as you like while I go off and do my work. There'll probably be other kids who come along and want to have a ride along with you. Don't show them how many coins you've got. They'll have their mums and dads with them. They can pay. You'll probably get a few free rides that way and that means we can save the rest for another day. Sound good? I nodded. See you in a bit, he said and disappeared again. Carefully, I took another 20p from my pocket, zipped it back up and dropped it to the slot. Round and round I went, again and again, 20p after 20p. As my dad had predicted, pretty soon some other kids wanted to go. First it was a pair of toddlers, a brother and sister with their grandparents who paid and seemed happy for me to ride along. Then a couple of boys closer to my age came and sat on the other two cars. They didn't have any money and the grown-ups they were with weren't paying them any attention. So I quickly slipped a 20p in the slot and the boys came along for the ride. Then they hopped off and went on their way. You may be wondering why none of the passers-by seemed to care that a six-year-old child was hanging around the town centre on his own, unsupervised. My simple explanation is that it was 1986, and that's what people did back then. Sometimes I look back on some of the things that happened in that period of my childhood, and the temptation is to say, well, it's because my parents didn't know what the hell they were doing. But that wouldn't be telling the whole truth, because... Within the social context they were living in, most of the things my parents did were perfectly normal. This doesn't mean they weren't totally insane. It means that sometimes it's difficult to distinguish their insanity from everybody else's. As lunchtime approached, I'd almost used up all the coins in my left-hand pocket. I was hungry and desperate for the toilet. I had no idea when my dad was going to turn up again. I decided to give up waiting. I jumped off the ride feeling slightly weird about walking in a straight line instead of spinning. The ride didn't go fast enough to make me dizzy, but I'd been spun around so many times my body had got used to the motion and I almost had to relearn how to walk. This must have been what the astronauts felt like, I thought, when they came back to Earth. Then I thought about my dad's shirt and tie theory and realised he was wrong because he'd forgotten about the astronauts. I knew where McDonald's was, so I popped in there and used the toilet. Then I bought a Happy Meal with the remainder of the change in my left pocket. I gobbled it up in double-quick time and shoved the toy where the money had been. Then I went back to the ride and waited for my dad. I sat on a different colour car this time. I was about to make a start at the right-hand pocket when I heard a voice behind me. Lunchtime! Oh, hiya, Dad. Been having fun? Yeah. Good. Brilliant. Right, let's get that McDonald's. I'm not that hungry, actually. 
Come on, have yourself a happy meal. You enjoy it. This is our special day together, right? So that's what we did. I polished off my second happy meal while my dad had a burger. What's that you're eating? I said. Burger, he said. You said veggie burger at the counter. Did they give you the wrong one? No, he said. It's a veggie burger. They call it that because it's made of vegetables. Is it nice? Not really. Why are you having it then? Because I'm vegetarian. What's that? It means I don't eat meat or fish. It took me a few moments to figure things out. Up until our week away, I don't recall ever having shared a meal with my dad because he was always out. He'd bought us fish and chips every day that week, but I'd been too busy focusing on my own plate to realise he'd been eating fish and chips without the fish. And the sausage sandwiches were just for me. He'd been eating something else, which he hadn't drawn my attention to. Why don't you eat meat or fish? I asked. I don't like to talk about it, he said. Why not? I prefer not to, that's all. I just don't want to make a big deal out of it. Okay. I went to the toilets and vomited, which made me feel a lot better. Then I had a chocolate milkshake. Fancy another go on that ride, said my dad. In all honesty, I was getting bored of the ride, but I didn't want to say no. My dad took me back there. I chose the green car this time. My dad disappeared. I had another few turns. The two boys who I'd ridden with earlier turned up again and jumped back on the ride. You still here? One of them said to me. I nodded. You been here the whole time? Not the whole time. I stopped for lunch. They laughed. How much money have you got? Said one of them. I don't know. You must have a lot if you've been riding here all day. Maybe I have. Give us a go then, said one of them. Stick one of your 20p's in. Are you going to say please, I said. They laughed again. I'm serious. If you want to ride, you have to say please. Okay, said one of them. Please. And you, I said. Please, said the other one. I stuck a 20p in the slot. The boys whooped and cheered the whole time, like they'd really hit the big time. The boys' parents still weren't paying them any attention, so I stuck another 20p in and round and round we went. Then the boys' mum called after them to jump off and follow her home. As they dismounted, one of them called at the top of his voice, This kid's giving away free rides, and all you have to do is say please. I was immediately surrounded on all sides by a growing queue. Kids of all ages were crowded around, watching as I took my next coin out. The boys who'd left had been swiftly replaced by a pair of four-year-old twins. Please, they yelled in unison, and so it went on. I didn't much like being the centre of attention. I did nothing to encourage any of them. Every time it looked as though I was inconspicuous again, some other helpful soul would announce to the world that I was indeed giving away free rides on the condition that my passengers asked me nicely. Then a pair of ten-year-olds who I recognised from my school barged through the huddle of infant spectators, waited for the ride to stop and hopped on. You might as well go home, one of them announced to the other kids. We're staying on here until this kid runs out of 20 peas. I know you, said the other one. What's your name? Frank, I said quietly. Like my grandad, 
Are you an old man? I'm six. Yeah, I can see that. What are you doing with an old man's name? I'm named after my dad. Well, tell your dad I don't like it. I'm calling you Jerry. Hit that slot, Jerry, said the other one. What? I said. He means put the money in. Oh, okay. The boys stood up on their seat as we span. It looked like fun, but there was no way I was joining them. Scream if you want to go faster, Jerry, one of them called. I hoped they weren't going to stay for long, but sadly the boys were as good as their word and stayed on the ride until my final coin was spent. They were acting like they were properly dizzy by the end, jumping off and staggering around the pavement, almost as though they believed in their own performance. They knew full well the experience of spending an hour on the ride was more like being an astronaut returning to Earth. See you at school, Jerry, they called as they hobbled off home. I sat on the wall and waited for my dad. I couldn't tell how long he took because I didn't have a watch and couldn't tell the time yet anyway. But I know it was still light and the shops were still open and it wasn't dinner time yet. I wasn't bothered about having to wait. I knew he hadn't abandoned me. Later when we got home, my mum asked me how my day was and I had nothing but praise for my old man. I told her that I'd had the most amazing time that I'd had McDonald's and spent all day long playing on the spinny round car thing in town with a massive bag of 20 piece. She told me to go and play in my room while her and my dad had a chat. Chapter 5 I don't know what they talked about, but the following Saturday, things were done a little differently. My dad took me to an arts and crafts session at the library. Why can't we do what we did last week? I said in the car. That was a really good ride, I'm doing it so many times. Oh, this arts and crafts thing is going to be so much better, said my dad. It's important that we actually spend time together. Also, it's important that I don't leave you on your own. Even when you've got important work to do? Yeah, speaking of that, we better not go straight to the library. I have to meet my mate Len. Len's your friend, I said. That's what I just said. We have to meet my friend Len. We met Len in a shop doorway and the grown-ups talked business while my dad fed me Mars bars one after the other until I was sick on his leg. I'd better go, he told Len. Just remember, blah 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 blah. I've used the word blah here to represent words I didn't recognise at the time. Knowing what I know now about the conversation, I could hazard a guess. But anyway, I'm still six at this point, so let's save all that. Off we went to the library. The theme of the art session was sea creatures. We could choose whether to make a shark, an octopus or a jellyfish. What if we make a shark with eight legs and jellyfish eyes, I said. Sounds good, said my dad. Off you go, grab some stencils. I'm ready with the scissors, let's do this. Are we in a hurry, I said. Not at all. I just need to meet up with Len again shortly, but trust me, we got loads of time. Okay, I said. I noticed all the other kids had chosen to make either the shark, the octopus or the jellyfish. As I ran the felt tip through the stencil, I asked my dad, do you think we'll get into trouble for inventing our own sea creature? 
That sounds like a daft thing to get into trouble about, said my dad. There's absolutely nothing wrong with being inventive. As a matter of fact, any parent who stifles their kids' creativity can blah, 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 blah. Again, I'm unsure as to which words my dad was using in this context. He did say these particular words at the absolute top of his voice. And from that point on, nobody else in the room was willing to glance in our direction. I cut the shapes out with the scissors provided and started attaching them to each other with a glue stick. Then I tried colouring them in, but that made the fins and tentacles fall off. Maybe we should have coloured the parts in before we glued them, I said. You've done nothing wrong, said my dad firmly. It's a glue. Seriously, what is the point of Pritt sticks? They have one job, one single purpose, to stick bits of paper to other bits of paper. They can't even do that. Well, forget it, Frank. I got some Bostick in the car. You just do the crayons while I'm gone. We'll sort this out properly. As he stormed out of the room, it occurred to me that my dad was unusually agitated. But it seemed like the kind of grown-up anger I wasn't quite ready to interpret yet. I understood that grown-ups sometimes get angry and sometimes they don't express themselves quite as well as they should. But I didn't know where to begin when it came to understanding that anger or asking him where it came from. Bostick, by the way, was my dad's preferred brand of super glue. Our house was crammed with the stuff. He stuck pictures on the wall with it. If anything ever broke, cracked tiles, loose light fittings, peeling wallpaper, even cracked crockery, my dad was ready with his quick-fix solution. I don't recall ever seeing him with a screwdriver or a spanner in his hand. My dad returned with the boss stick, and quick as a flash, my sea creature was fully formed. I held it up to the light and jiggled it about. You like that? he said. I made the universal OK symbol. You know the one where you form the letter O with your thumb and index finger? I'd recently learnt what the gesture meant and had taken a liking to it. The trouble was, once I'd done it, I couldn't stop. Literally, my finger and thumb were stuck together. Dad, I said. Oh, he said. Give it here. He took me by the hand and attempted to pull the finger and thumb apart. Ow, I said. Shh, he whispered. Don't draw attention to it. Shall we get these two ladies to help? I nodded towards the library assistants who were running the session. Better not, he said. They'll only look down their noses at us. I liked that expression, whatever it meant. Do they have eyes in their nostrils? I asked. Let's go, said my dad. He drove me to hospital. I sat in the back and drew a face on the back of my sea creature with eyes sticking out of its nose. How are they going to get my fingers unstuck, I said. They're not going to cut them apart with a knife, are they? There's a special chemical they put on them, said my dad. Funnily enough, the exact same thing happened to me once. It's useful stuff, is Bostick, but it's a pain to get unstuck. Total opposite of that horrible Pritt stick stuff. Come to think of it, maybe that's the reason my dad was so angry that day. Maybe he just really hated Pritt sticks. We had to wait for a couple of hours in A&E. We played I Spy until we ran out of things to spy. My dad found a car magazine and he read it while I looked at the pictures. Do you like cars? I asked. 
Not really, he said. I drive because I have to. What about you? Cars are okay, I said. What you have to remember about these things is that they're lethal weapons. What's a lethal weapon? Something you use to kill someone with, like a sword or a gun. You could just as easily kill people with cars and they'll pretty much let anyone drive around in one. All you have to do is take a test when you're 17. And all that involves is having someone sit next to you while you prove you can last 20 minutes without killing anyone. And if it turns out you can last 20 minutes without killing anyone, they'll let you have one of these things for the rest of your adult life. Which, once you're behind the wheel of a car, could end at any moment. I'd like to drive a truck, I said. That looks like fun. You could kill hundreds of people with one of those, said my dad. I'd be careful, I said. And then if I was a truck driver, I wouldn't have to wear a shirt and tie. I told you, Frank, it's good to wear a shirt and tie. Those are the proper jobs. Truck drivers are all a bit weird, if you ask me. And I'm being judgmental there because I've never actually met one. Just a feeling I have. What about astronauts, though, I said. What about them? I think that would be a really good job, and they don't have to wear a shirt and tie. Yes, they do. They wear them all the time. Going up into space is just a tiny part of their job. They don't wear spacesuits when they're on the ground. So when they're not wearing their spacesuits, there's no way they'll be allowed to swan around in a tracksuit. You watch next time you see an astronaut being interviewed on the news. I guarantee you, shirt and tie. For all I know, they wear a shirt and tie underneath their spacesuits as well. I mean, they've got to wear something under there. But what about... No, Frank, my dad snapped. Stop trying to catch me out. I'm right about this, OK? You're too young to understand it yet. But one day, you'll look back on all this and you'll think, yeah... My old man was right about that shirt and tie thing. I held my superglued finger and thumb up. What? he said. That's my way of saying okay, I said. That made him laugh. I laughed along with him, which was nice because this wasn't something that happened very often. Then he put his arm around me and gave me a hug, which was even more unusual, and I kind of liked it, but also I kind of didn't. In the car on the way home, my dad asked me not to tell my mum about the hospital trip. Why not? I said. She doesn't think I'm all that suited to looking after you properly, he said. I'm trying to prove her wrong, because I want to carry on taking you out on a Saturday. When my mum asked how our day went, I told her we had a brilliant time. This wasn't a lie. Chapter 6 The following Saturday, my dad announced at breakfast that he was going to take me to the park. What are you going to do while we're gone? He asked my mum. I haven't decided yet, she said. Well, make sure you take it easy, said my dad. You always end up going to the supermarket when you're supposed to be relaxing. Me and Frank will take care of the groceries. You don't have to lift a finger today. Stay away from town for a change. Right. I was all ready to brief my dad on my favourite park-related activities, but when we got in the car, he said, 
Don't tell your mum. Well, we're going to be going somewhere better than the park. Really? You know how I've got all this work to do at the weekends? I've been trying to figure out some way that I can get it all done and still spend time with you on a Saturday. So now I've figured out a way. And it's just our secret, right? Why does everything have to be our secret? I said. Come on, Frank. Remember we talked about this. Keeping secrets and telling lies is what people do. It's nothing to worry about and it's lots and lots of fun. So where are we going? You'll see. You'll get to meet my friends. We just got some boring stuff to do first. We drove into town and my dad left me outside a shop while he took care of some business inside. I wasn't allowed Mars bars again after last week so he gave me a bunch of grapes and instructed me to eat them slowly. He came out of the shop five minutes later and moved on to another one a few doors down. I'm the only one who bothers doing this, he explained to me as we walked, which didn't actually explain anything at all. You see, the others don't think in a tactical way. They trust their luck too much. They believe in luck. I believe in making sure you're right before you put your money down. Keep eating those grapes. He disappeared inside for a while. We visited two more shops before our meeting with my dad's friends. You see, said my dad, they don't usually let children in, but I've been speaking with Olaf, he's the manager. Olaf, I said, Olaf is your friend? Not exactly. He's the manager of the place, I go and meet my friends, and they don't usually let children inside. But I've been speaking to Olaf, and he's told me it's okay. You're allowed to come and hang around with the grown-ups today, and help me do my work. Selling locks, I said. No, he said. Do you know what gambling is? No, I said. You'll get the idea. I started singing my secret song in my head, the one I'd invented when we visited the flat with the names on the pinboard. Frank, Claude, Olaf, Martin, Ben, Omar, Graham, then there's Len. How many of those names have my dad mentioned so far? Frank and Claude were my dad and my uncle, so they were already accounted for. He just mentioned Olaf. Then there was that story about Graham and the thousand pounds and their secrets, whatever they were. I'd met Len in person the previous week. That just left Martin, Ben and Omar. I hoped all three of them would be in this place of theirs because perhaps if I got to meet them all, perhaps I could figure out how all of those names came to be gathered in one place and maybe I could work out why my dad didn't want to talk to me about it. We stepped through the door of the shop into a fog of cigarette smoke. Instantly, my dad turned into a completely different person. The group of men who were gathered around the TV screens on the walls cheered as we arrived, and my dad cheered back at them as though he were drunk. I didn't quite understand what drunk was, but I'd heard about it. I'd seen drunken people staggering through town, and my mum's disdainful reaction to them as we passed. Apparently, my dad had just turned into one of those people. Look who I got with me, he hollered. Start em young, eh? This is Frank Jr. Frank, this is Dave, Pete, Phil and Martin. So just Omar and Ben to go, I thought. Blah, 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 said one of them. They all laughed. Uh, yes, I said. Blah, 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 said another one. And they all laughed again. Blah! 
All right, said my dad. Easy now, lads. There's little ones present. I wasn't really listening because I'd become very interested in the fruit machine. My dad noticed I was staring at his flashing coloured lights and yelled at the top of his voice, Dave will show you how to work that thing, Frankie. He knows how to work it because he's a grade A idiot. They all laughed again. I wondered why my dad's friends really enjoyed being insulted. I wondered why my dad had called me Frankie. I wondered why knowing how to work a machine was evidence of Dave's lack of intelligence. An answer to these questions was not forthcoming as my dad and his friends became distracted by some horse racing on one of the screens. I found a paper and pencil on one of the tables and sat down by myself in the corner to make some notes. I decided to start a written record of my investigations into the link between my dad and his associates. I made a list of the names, doing them backwards as a secret code, in case anyone looks over my shoulder. I placed a tick next to the names I'd met in person. I placed a star next to the names of the ones I'd heard my dad mention in conversation. The only member of the group who didn't have a symbol next to his name was Ben. Given that my dad seemed to have no qualms about introducing me to his friends, I'd probably meet Ben soon enough. My dad and his friends continued jabbering at each other for a while. I drew a few doodles, variations on the mutant sea creature theme which I'd been playing around with all week. Then someone called from behind the counter at the back. Both myself and my dad turned around. It's your wife, said the man behind the counter. Olaf, possibly? You ain't see me, said my dad quickly. Sorry, mate. I already told her you're here. It sounded important. My dad shook his head wearily and crossed the floor slowly to take hold of the phone. The room fell into an awkward hush. My dad covered the receiver with his palm as he gathered his thoughts. Then he addressed my mum loudly, still in his drunk voice. All right, darling? His mates were sniggering like school kids. Of course I'm at the bookies. Of course Frank's here too. I wanted him to see what I get up to on a Saturday and meet my friends. Surely that's better for him than going down the park. This is properly educational, love. He pulled a face at my mum's response. Drunken hooligans? You hear that, lads? The lads started jeering, but my dad gestured for them to hush. It's a perfectly safe environment for a young boy, he continued. He pulled another face. Stop stressing about it, darling. If he dies, I'll buy you a Cadbury's cream egg. The place erupted into laughter. Dave hooted like an owl. Pete dropped to his knees and slapped the floor. Phil and Martin clung to each other like they were both on the verge of collapsing in a heap. Even to a six-year-old, they all seemed so deeply immature. All apart from Martin, because I knew something about Martin. I knew there was something he knew that the others didn't know. And one day, I would find out what it was. Chapter 7 But you know what? There was something about that Cadbury's cream egg line that really bothered me. Not at the time, but later on in life, as an adult, after my dad disappeared. I was 24 years old when it happened. I'd left home years earlier and I'd had minimal contact with my parents since then. 
Then, on 12th of October 2004, my dad, at the age of 55, popped out to buy a bottle of milk and never came back. He was reported missing. The police did whatever they could, but dead or alive, he was never found. It's difficult to describe how I felt about it at the time, because I wasn't really involved with the family all that much. To begin with, my mum gave me an update over the phone once a week on how the investigation was going, but it wasn't long before there was nothing to report. So we went back to only talking a handful of times a year. But then, and I'm not sure exactly when, I started remembering things about my dad. And the first thing I remembered was that day at the betting shop and the cream egg comment. Looking back, it's no wonder I'd forgotten about it. That was the last time my dad took me out on a Saturday. He went back to working all week, coming home while I was tucked up in bed, then disappearing at the weekend. I almost forgot that my dad existed at all. It was such a rare occasion that I actually saw him. This routine remained exactly the same until the day I left for university at the age of 18. My dad wasn't there to see me off. My mum drove me to my new halls of residence and from that point the longest I ever spent in my parents' house was a couple of days over Christmas or Easter. Don't get me wrong, there was no animosity in any of this. My parents didn't really care about me and I didn't really care about them. In my family, the concept of family just wasn't all that important. But then, as I say, I started to remember there was a time when the concepts of family was important in my family. It's difficult to guess at my dad's motivations, but I was convinced that he'd kidnapped me because he wanted us to have a closer relationship. I was convinced that he wanted to take me out at the weekends because he wanted to spend quality time with his son. But was he just trying to prove a point to my mum, whatever point that happened to be? Is that why he disappeared too, was... That his way of showing her he didn't need her anymore? What does the cream egg comment tell us about my dad's feelings towards me? It was a joke at my expense, a joke in which I die and my mother is compensated with a small lump of chocolate. It's a complicated gag if you think about it. Who is the butt of that joke? Is it me because the value of my life has been reduced to that of confectionery? Is my mum the butt of the joke as the recipient of this inappropriate insurance policy? Or did the joke have no but at all? Was it an exercise in absurdism? One late night in 2005, I phoned my uncle Claude. I'd had no contact with Claude for a number of years, other than exchanging Christmas cards. But a sudden urge had overcome me, and despite the lateness of the hour... I needed some answers. Uncle Claude was awake and happy to chat. As a matter of fact, it was difficult to get a word in edgeways. But when I managed to steer the conversation in the direction I wanted, I was able to briefly outline what happened that day at the bookies. I'm asking you because you're his brother, I said. You grew up together, you shared secrets and you definitely know him better than me. All I'm really wondering about is what you think he meant. By the cream egg comment, said Uncle Claude. Exactly. Nice one. What? 
Exactly. Very good. I'm not fooling around here, mate. Why are men of your generation so preoccupied with puns? Good lord, you really do sound like Frank Senior now. That's just the sort of thing you used to come out with. Really? I don't really feel anything like him, but then I didn't really know him. And I feel like everything hinges on my interpretation of this one joke. That's why I felt compelled to call you at this time of night. I just wanted to hear your take on the situation, that's all. Well, I'm happy to help, Frank. As long as I'm able to understand things properly, it would help if you can tell me exactly what he said and exactly how he said it. The funny thing is, I can remember all of it. I remember exactly how he said it because I remember thinking how funny he sounded in front of his friends. He sounded exactly like them, like he was drunk. Very good, said Uncle Claude. And you're dead right there, Frank. Your dad was a social chameleon. It's what made him a good salesman. Did you know he was a good salesman? No, but I know that's what he did for a living. Oh, he did it awfully well, awfully well. You could say he had the gift of the gab or whatever, but the thing about your dad is most salespeople are consciously putting on an act like they're playing a part, like an actor reading lines from a script. And it's the same in both professions. The better you are at putting on a good performance, the better the results. But with Frank Senior, he was a lot more complicated state of affairs. He didn't really think of a sales pitch as a performance. He thought of it as two people sitting down having a chat. And the reason he was so successful was that he had this uncanny ability to adopt the mannerisms and mode of speech of the person he was supposed to be selling to. And it really seemed to put them at ease. He seems to know an awful lot about his work, I said. Well, he worked for me, you see, said Uncle Claude. It's my company. I was his boss for many years. It's a shame that no one's ever bothered explaining this to you, but I suppose that's what we're like as a family. Like what? We don't talk to each other. Some families talk to each other and we don't. I'm not saying it's good or bad, Frank. It's just the way it is. It's the way we are. Let's just get back to your question of what my dad sounded like when he made the cream egg joke. By the way, did you ever hang around with my dad and his gambling mates? Did you hear his drunk voice? Well, it wasn't really his drunk voice. Well, I know he didn't drink, I said. I understand that he sounded drunk when he was talking to his drunken friends because he was, you know, consciously or unconsciously copying the way they expressed themselves while in that group of people. I'm just wondering if you'd observed him behaving in that way yourself. Yes, said Claude. I definitely have. OK. And you wanted to know exactly what he said, word for word? That would be helpful if you want my opinion on what the joke means. As I say, I said, I can indeed recall the whole thing word for word. The only thing I don't know for sure is what my mum was saying on the other end of the phone. What I assume she said is that I shouldn't have been there with him with all that smoke and booze. And he said, and this is exactly what he said, I swear, it's a perfectly safe environment for a young boy. Then he paused and he grimaced at my mum's response, whatever that was. Then he said, Stop stressing about it, darling. If he dies, I'll buy you a Cadbury's cream egg. Right, said Uncle Claude thoughtfully. 
And I'll tell you something else, I added, and I don't want this to influence your interpretation, but I feel like this is relevant. Whenever I think of this incident, and as I've said, it's not very often because I literally forgot that it happened for the best part of 20 years, but whenever I think about it now, it makes me chuckle. I do think it's a good joke. And I don't think it was simply a case of my dad mirroring his friend's behaviour because, from what I recall, his friends just seem like total morons. You're not a bad judge of character, said Uncle Claude. Thank you. And I agree with you, I do think it's a good joke. Your dad was a funny man. He may not have seemed that way because he, he didn't smile very much. We were brought up on the, on the goons and Python and Pete and Dud. He loved all of that stuff. And that's why that joke was so good. First of all, let's look at the rhythm of the thing. It's like a good drum beat. dum da dum da dum da dum 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 You see what I mean? It's got that rhythm to it. And then there's the element of taboo. Think about how many jokes rely on that, Frank. Whether it's smut or innuendo or gallows humour. Something unmentionable, veiled within a one-liner. And this joke's got all of that packed right in there, hasn't it? Your dad was joking about the potential death of a child, his own son. You don't get much darker than that. And that, for me, is where the heart of the joke lies. This is the point your father was making, Frank. Albeit, in a somewhat vicious and crude way, it was his way of saying to your mother... Of course, our son isn't in any danger. Don't be so ridiculous. In other words, I understand you want to know who the butt of the joke was, and I would say it definitely wasn't you. You were an essential component in the same way that a door is an essential component of a knock-knock joke. And the cream egg? Well, the cream egg has no real significance. It's there because it's a surprising way to end that sentence. And that's the way to deliver a punchline. I know you think my generation are needlessly obsessed with puns, and that may be true, but I suppose you could say we're obsessed with them because making a pun is an easy way of adding a surprising end to a sentence. And my generation certainly like to do things on the cheap. Well, let's make your dad the exception to that rule. The cream egg joke was better than simple wordplay. It was deeper than that. And that's why we've spent the last God knows how long discussing it. How do you know so much about comedy? I said. I know all sorts of things, said Uncle Claude. About all sorts of different subjects. I must say, Frank, it's very, very nice to be able to speak about these things with you. It feels like we're making some real progress and that can only be a good thing, can't it? I'm glad you're happy to talk, I said. Very happy. Because there's something else I wanted to talk to you about also concerning my dad's disappearance. Do you know that he kidnapped me when I was six? No, but that doesn't surprise me. I know exactly what period in history you're talking about. Your old man took an unscheduled break from work for a couple of weeks because of what he called marital difficulties. Your mum kept calling and asking where he'd gone. She didn't mention he'd run off with you, which is strange. I'd have mentioned my missing child if I was her. My mum's not the most forthcoming of people, I said. Agreed. Well, neither was your dad. They made a good pair. I couldn't help notice Uncle Claude's use of the past tense, but didn't really feel like pulling him up on it. He brought me back after a week, I said. 
He didn't take me too far, maybe just a mile away from home. It was a two-bedroom flat in a block somewhere, sixth or seventh floor. I could see my school from the bedroom window and the park. If I do my research, I could probably figure out exactly where it is. But I thought I'd just ask you because I'm guessing you know the place I mean. I knew Uncle Claude was still on the line. I could hear him breathing. Well, I said. No idea, he said softly. Your name was on a pinboard there. It looked like some sort of timetable you guys had figured out. He probably stuck one of his work rotors up in the kitchen or something. How'd you know it was in the kitchen? That's where I keep mine. Anyway, it wasn't a work rotor. None of the names on the timetable were people he worked with. Olaf was on there. He's a betting shop manager. Come to think of it, there was uh, one of our sales team was called Olaf, yeah. Right, so my dad had two close associates, both called Olaf. Come on, Uncle Claude, that's a bit of a stretch. I just want to know where my dad is, and if it turns out he's been hiding out in this flat all along, right under our noses. He hasn't. How do you know that? Do you know where he is? I've got no idea where he is, but I know for a fact he's not in that flat. So you do know about the flat? Of course I know about the flat, he sighed. You figured it out already. A bunch of us, your dad included, used to rent this flat out between us and we, we figured out a timetable for who could use it when, all behind our wives and partners' backs. But it's not what you think, Frank. It sounds like some sort of seedy love nest for married men to take their various bits on the side. But it's not like that at all. That flat is a sanctuary for these blokes. All they want to do is get away from it all, have their own space. Omar tinkers with his engine parts. Graham does his watercolours. I look after my stamp collection. Your dad did whatever he did with whatever he kept in that box. And, you know, in the modern world, I suppose you call it a man cave. And that's, that's what sort of place it is. It's a place to go and be yourself. It's probably fairly difficult for a young man like yourself to understand that because you don't really have the same problems we did. You don't need a place to be yourself because you're allowed to be yourself. You don't have to put up a big front all the time. We weren't allowed to do that in our day. Everyone had to be exactly the same. And if there were any bits of you that weren't like everybody else, you just had to keep it hidden away. I'm not just talking about things like sexual preferences. I'm talking about subtler differences. You really wouldn't understand any of this, Frank. You're from a different age to me and your dad, and thank God for that. Seriously, don't listen to anything anyone ever tells you about the olden days, especially the ones who'll have you convinced that things were better back then. They weren't. They were awful. Well, this is really good stuff, I said. I mean, it's good to hear it. It's good to get your take on things. But let's just talk about the flat a bit more. How does it work? You guys figure out between you who's going to have it on what particular day and time? It can be a bit of a pain to administrate, said Uncle Claude. I mean, there were eight of us all together in the early days, all from different walks of life. We didn't have email or anything. I mean, nowadays it's just the six of us and we sort it all out on a MySpace page. But back in the 80s, it was... Oh, you know, uh, private notes here and there, secret calls from payphones, all that sort of private eye stuff. 
I seem to spend about half my life trying to organise that place. And you said there were eight of you? Who were they all? I can't tell you that, Frank. It's a secret. Come on, if you tell me, it will save me time having to investigate. Either way, I'm going to find out. OK, said Claude. Have it your way. It was me, Olaf, Graham, your dad, Martin, Omar and Len. That's only seven. You said there were eight. I must have meant seven then. And who's in the group now? Six of you, is it? I didn't say that. You did. Frank, that flat was sold off years ago, way before your dad disappeared. That's how I know he couldn't possibly be staying there. It was Olaf's place, you see. It was our landlord, if you like. And one day, he decided enough was enough. Maybe his wife found out. Who knows? Anyway, he sold it to a young couple with a kid on the way. Good luck to them. They've inherited a happy house. And this was when? Oh, back in the late 90s. That kid must be going on for eight or nine by now. And how long has MySpace been going? What's MySpace? You brought it up yourself, Claude. Ignore me, Frank. I'm very drunk. You talked about the flat in the present tense. You said you administered it using a MySpace page. Did you not say that? Frank, it's been very, very nice talking to you. Believe me, I'm very happy that you reached out to me in the way you did. And I would really have to go now. Please just ignore everything I've told you. I'm not to be trusted. And please don't talk to anybody else about that flat. Especially not anyone's wives or partners, right? I know you want to find out what happened to your dad. And I really want to know what happened too. But the flat is a total dead end. He definitely isn't there. I can talk to you about anything else you want to know. Anything that will help you track down your dad. But I just don't want to talk about that flat anymore. I'm sorry. He stopped talking. But he didn't put the phone down straight away. I guess he was waiting for my reaction. But I couldn't think of anything appropriate to say. So I said nothing. And he said nothing. And we stayed on the phone, listening to each other's breathing for a weird length of time. Actually, I said, I do just have one more question. Who's Ben? Boy, Frank, he said. Thank you for listening. This is getting interesting, right? Watch out for the next one of these coming your way very, very soon. Or if you're listening 24 hours into the future, it's there now. Listen to it now. Remember your mission, listeners. Buy a physical copy of the novel Everything I Am by Frank Burton and give it to someone you like, someone who will like the book. They don't need to be familiar with the podcast. The story makes complete sense as its own thing. Details on frankburton.co.uk I will see you very, very soon.
Ragbag Podcast is part of Britpod Scene, an independent network of uniquely British podcasts that's always growing. Check out BritpodScene.com or follow Britpod Scene on Twitter to find out more. <laughs>